If you've been following the news at all lately, you'll know that there have been attacks on a prison in northeastern Syria carried out by Islamic State or ISIS. What does all this mean? Hi, this is Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. You're listening to Canadian Intelligence, a podcast about national security. As somebody who worked in intelligence for more than three decades, including at the Canadian Intelligence Security Intelligence Service, or CSIS, and as someone who's written six books on terrorism in the past six years, it's something I follow quite close to my heart. As somebody who also worked at the coalface of intelligence, I also have some fairly strong opinions on what to do with Canadians who join terrorist groups abroad, some of whom died in terrorist attacks, like in 2014 and 2013 and others who are languishing, perhaps, in conditions abroad. The current situation with Islamic State or ISIS is is quite striking. Uh, Many people dismissed ISIS as a spent force a couple of years ago when Donald Trump called them totally defeated. Like many things that Donald Trump said, it was incorrect. But there's no question that we're facing a very serious situation in northeastern Syria, parts of so-called Kurdistan, where Islamic State is still carrying out daily attacks. The Kurds estimate they've carried out 4,000 attacks in the past four years alone. And this current crisis is at a, a prison where a lot of people, including Westerners, including Canadians, may in fact be held. So the question then becomes what to do about it. To talk about this issue, I'm very pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Alexander Bain. She's a professor of religious studies at St. Thomas University in Fredericton, New Brunswick. She and I go way back and have held rather um, differing views on what to do with the situation. But I wanted to bring her on to talk about the perspective of what Canada should do about its citizens languishing abroad. So Alexandra... I know you're really busy. Thanks for taking the time to be on the podcast. You're welcome, Phil. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for asking me. What about a bit of background first, Alexandra? So you're not only at uh, St. Thomas University, you're also the director of FAVE, or Families Against Violent Extremism. How did you get involved in that in the first place? Um, well, I my through my academic studies, I have an interest in Islamic uh, ideologies um, and I've been particularly interested over the years in um, in what I see as a new new religious movement that has been growing out of Islam, which is uh, Salafi jihadism. We lost a very close family friend to Salafi jihadism in 2004 when a young man from Vancouver left to fight in Chechnya at the uh, basically at the instigation of a local imam and. Um, and I knew the local imam, so I, I began studying uh, the process quite closely, I guess in about 2004. Um, and then in uh, 2014 and 15, I worked um, with, uh, I, I collaborated with Warren uh, uh, Dawson and Amar Nath Amara Singham on um, their article talking to uh, foreign fighters. Uh, And I I was able to interview um, approximately 40 active uh, jihadists online while they were in in Syria. Um, So I began to develop an understanding of what makes young people go over uh, to fight in a foreign land and leave their own country and family behind. Um, and I, in 2015, 16, I shifted my focus from the young individuals themselves 
uh, to their families, parents and families. Um, and I worked with a woman named Christiane Boudreau. Who I know very well. She's been on one of my podcasts, actually. Right. And she, she was uh, left by the Canadian government with her 11-year-old son in Paris, sorry, in France, where she was living, she'd gone to stay with her parents. It took me a year and a half to convince the Canadian government to allow her to come home. During that time, I took over directorship of her Hyatt Canada family support. And when Christiane returned to Canada, I began Families Against Violent Extremism with a, with a group of, of young volunteers um, and that's we've been working on families against violent extremism now for the past uh, since 2017, uh, and um, the aim of families against violent extremism is to counter the spread of of these of these ideologies of this of the group um, by working with the families of people involved. Uh, and I and also doing interventions with the individuals themselves. Over the past few years, uh, the work has entirely focused on those people who have gone to um, gone to Syria and and been uh, either either um, gave themselves up or were were taken into prison by the SDF in mm-hmm. North and East Syria. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny, you, you bring your back memories here because you mentioned 2004, which is about the same time that I started looking at radicalization of violence at CSIS when I was there. And that's about the same time you and I met, I believe it was in the late 2000s. You know, to summarize, you know, Alexandra... I thought you'd forgotten, Phil. That's right. I remember you giving a talk in our theater at CSIS way back then. That's right. I did. And I remember you in, in, a, in the lunchroom. That's right. Um, that's right. Yep. The... So just to summarize, Alexander, the situation with Islamic State or ISIS, you know, there's estimates as many as 40,000 so-called foreign fighters left a upwards of 100 countries around the world to join Islamic State beginning in the mid-2010s. Of course, my second book was all about foreign fighters and like your work looking at why people do these types of things. Since Islamic State lost its so-called caliphate, or as Mubin Sheikh calls it, the caliphate, um, there's been a real... Uh, discussion, debate, or maybe even lack thereof of what to do next. So a lot of these people, a lot of them died uh, in airstrikes and in in, uh, military action by the Iraqis, the Syrians, and the Kurds. Uh, Some of them fled to other areas. Some are still active with Islamic State, and a whole bunch ended up in prison or in refugee camps. I know you visited on several occasions. I followed you a long time on social media, uh, and I know that you are a very ardent advocate that we here in Canada should move heaven and earth to repatriate those Canadians who are still alive and still living uh, either in the refugee camps or in prisons in Iraq and Syria. Um, most Canadians don't seem to agree with that repatriation. Why, why are you so ardent about this, Alexander, that we should, re- we should make efforts? And, and for the record, the Canadian government has, <laughs> well, let's face it, used the excuse that it's too dangerous to go up there to interview these people, which we both know is bollocks. That's not the case. But the successive Canadian governments have not touched us with a 10-foot pole or maybe a three-meter pole for Canadian. Why are you so much in in favor of of doing the opposite? Um, I guess because I've been working with these people for so long uh, and and I I realize that the majority of them are um, what you would call, what we would have called at the end of the Second World War, camp followers. Mm-hmm. Um, people who are the flotsam and jetsam of, uh, you know, the inevitable flotsam and jetsam of a war. 
um, moms and small kids. The majority of Canadians held in these camps and prisons are are moms and small kids. We have a handful of men. Um, a Canadian man was assisting the SDF in the prison break uh, to to help uh, the prisoners uh, who were, had escaped from ISIS. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do have a few men. Um, and ultimately, we, I, we want to bring them home because that's, that's the way that our organization um, works to prevent the spread of violent extremism. Uh, left, left in, in Syria to rot, uh, these people have absolutely no message for their fellow Canadians. We don't, don't get to hear their disappointment, their severe disappointment with the so-called caliphate they went off to join. Um, I think that it's to leave the children there is to behave the way ISIS does itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm ashamed of Canada for doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have over 35, 36 kids mm-hmm. there in absolutely horrendous conditions. Right. Uh, and to keep them there simply because there's a handful of men who may or may not have joined ISIS and fought. Some clearly did. They've gone on, on, shows uh, been interviewed by by journalists um speaking about it and lots of canadians um, actually became I mean, chief propaganda spokespeople for ISIS, like john mcguire and people like that historically john mcguire appears to be gone mm-hmm. uh dead um uh, mohammed khalifa is in the united states um he's mr flames of war mm-hmm. um but you know we do have other canadians in the in the prisons a, a, a small handful and the majority of them went over to Syria as as broken, broken men, mm-hmm. people with mental health disease that was identified by the RCMP to the families before they went over. So, so by bringing, first of all, it's not reasonable to expect the Kurds to to try them in that in that situation. Um, the Rojava Information Center just re-upped. Uh, an article that they had written about the state of the legal system right. in the area called North and East Syria, right. Kurdistan, if you will. They don't like that term. They're, they're a multi-ethnic uh, region. So they prefer the autonomous region of North and East Syria. Um, they don't want us to leave our our people there. And, and the perfect example of this is this attack on on the prison in Al Hasake, uh, Sina'a prison in Al Hasake? This has been, you know, the the accident, if you will, waiting to happen. Uh, we've been, I've been su- suggesting that this is going this is going to happen, and Canada is going to be sorry because we're going to lose the opportunity um, to to uh, to return these Canadians. Mm-hmm. Um, to Canada and to and to and to study them to to uh, to work with them, Families Against Violent Extremism has put in place across the country social and medical services um, for all of all of the families who have contacted us and who are working with lawyer Lawrence Greenspawn on a on a court challenge, a charter challenge mm-hmm. um, on the basis of human rights, rights of the child, citizen, rights of citizenship, habeas corpus, and discrimination. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and we have put in place in order to help their families um, recover 
from from this experience that they've had and to make sure that the ideology doesn't get spread further amongst family and friends. Uh, we work closely with the families and, and um, most of them have made arrangements to get help uh, in, in preparation for the return of their loved ones. And there's help in, been put in place for, for the uh, returnees themselves should they, should they not be incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Those who have committed crimes, that's above my pay grade, Bill. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> up to you guys to figure out what to do with them. Um, and, and, you know, what happens to them in prison, that's, again, not my bailiwick. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm working with the families, which I feel is often, um, it's the only, only source of, of uh, help that we can give these people right. is by helping helping their family to recover from this and 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 to to re, to accept them back into the family and and help them recover. Well, kudos to you for working with the families. I, I too have met with mothers whose children um, went to join terrorist groups and who committed acts of terrorism and often died in those. Uh, there's so much there, Alexander. I want to pick up on, but but very briefly. I think the one thing, even though we've had our disagreements over the past, I think the one thing we certainly agree with, and that is uh, the children. The children did not choose to join Islamic State. Some were, in fact, were born there. Uh, Some went as toddlers, as infants. And with the exception of those in their early teens, which is a little more problematic situation because ISIS actually courted them as a so-called, you know, lion cubs of the caliphate. I think we all agree that the children, in fact, uh, should be repatriated sooner rather than later. But the women is an interesting sort of middle ground, I would I would suggest to you. Uh, there have been stories that, of course, some have been were, were lied to by their spouses and or brothers or whatever went over there. There's certainly some that seem to enthusiastically join Islamic State. Do you make a distinction between children who are completely innocent of any possible involvement in ISIS crimes against humanity and the women who somehow some do, some don't? Or are you tending to lop them all, all in together? Hmm. Um, again, it's kind of above my pay grade. <laughs> I am, I'm not, uh, I am not, I'm speaking to women in the camps daily, mm-hmm. uh, Canadian women uh, and other women. Um, I purposely don't speak with them about what happened prior to their entering the camps. I do not want to appear in a court case and have to, to give evidence against or for people. Um, I'm not trained to be able to, uh, you know, disertain which person is shooting me the shit and, and who isn't. Right. We do have really good psychologists who, who that will be their job. Uh, and I'm, I'm assuming the security services and intelligence have been doing their job. And, and really the stuff you're talking about here is, is your job, not mine. Mm-hmm. My job is to, to help these people uh, reconnect with their families and, and rebuild lives that are built, uh, you know, from, from, a, from a Canadian uh, democratic perspective. One of the issues, Alexander, that's been raised by governments, and there, there's some truth to this. I mean, let's set aside the danger of going into the area. We know that's false. You've been there. Lauren's been there. Amar's been there. I mean, a lot of people have been there. So I haven't been there personally, but it, it's not rocket science to get into that area of the, of the world. But the one issue that's raised constantly is that if we bring them home, and we're talking largely about the men here and, and the women, some of whom were involved in 
slave owning of Yazidi girls, for example, that court cases will be next to impossible to carry out because the evidence won't be there. The witnesses are over there. The evidence is over there. We had a case of a woman who was returned recently and charges were not dropped, but she was put on a peace bomb, which is pretty, yeah, it's pretty small beer here in Canada. One suggestion that's been made by the Swedes and others, I believe, is what if we were to set up sort of an international tribunal, something along the lines of Nuremberg post-World War II, in the region where the West would help with, with money, it would help with lawyers, it would help with tribunals to actually try the people in the areas where their crimes were committed so that the locals could see justice being done. What do you think about that possibility? Um, well, it's uh, four years down the road and it hasn't happened. No, it hasn't. There have been people talking about it. Um, from what I understand of the Syrian Kurds and people from the AANES, uh, Dr. Abdul Karim Omar has repeatedly asked all countries to uh, repatriate their their citizens, um, so that uh, so that they can do the work that that they're uh, aiming at, which is to fight ISIS. They don't want trouble in their backyard, and our our families are are basically trouble in their backyard. Mm-hmm. They don't want them there. So um, so again, uh, you know. Bringing them home is is the safest, most effective means of of uh, of protecting the anti ISIS, the global anti ISIS coalition, and the SDF's work in northeast Syria, and in making sure that our Canadians are safe uh, and and returned to Canada. Uh, even the ones you're worried about, Phil, we're, we're better off. If they come back to Canada and and we have eyes on them, if you are worried about them, mm. rather than leaving them in the situation rumbling around northeast Syria, where you know they they could escape, they could, um, you know, they could go on. They, who knows? Well, if you know, whether whether we think these the, the majority are obviously children are in desperate need to come home. Agreed. You know, or um, and the women uh, again we. There is evidence. We have five eyes. The woman who returned to Canada has not gotten off scot-free. She has been charged, and she will be going to court in March. So, um, you know, Canada can do this. We're we're a big country, uh, mm. well, relatively. Um, we have the system systems in place to deal with these people, and I'm kind of ashamed that we're not. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to come back to bite us in the ass. Um- you make some good points. I, I will. I will counter that. Uh, having eyes on them is easier said than done, given all the priorities that we have here. It's not that simple to actually to follow somebody. I'm going to be very unfair, Alexandra, and and paint for you a scenario, the worst case scenario, and um, mm-hmm. which I think I think points to what a lot of people in government are probably thinking. So here's the worst case scenario: uh, we agree to repatriate an ISIS terrorist. We we go to court and we try to get charges. Uh, we charge the person, we go to trial. Turns out the case falls apart completely because either the evidence has been tainted or the evidence simply isn't sufficient. There are enough eyewitnesses. Uh, the person uh, does not uh, is not found guilty. Yeah, maybe goes through a program, a so-called de-radicalization program. That's a term I really don't like because I think it's very, yeah. I- I- very imprecise. They don't, quote-unquote, de-radicalize. Down the road, uh, they either inspire someone 
to follow in their footsteps or they themselves go out and, and carry out an attack and kill a few people. And then Canadians are saying, well, why the heck did you bring them back here in the first place? Had they remained over there, we wouldn't be dealing with the deaths in Fredericton or Ottawa or Montreal, or whatever. What would be your response to, again, that's a very, I, I apologize. It's unfair to put you in this position, but what you mean, Canadians would be livid if this were the case. What would be your response to that? I, I've kind of been in that position before, Phil. Um, I interviewed for months on end, uh, Aaron Driver. Yes. And, um, and I know that Aaron Driver was interviewed by my colleagues who, uh, who are specialists in the field and consider themselves able to determine whether or not someone is going to, uh, offend. And they determined that in fact, Aaron Driver was not going to offend, uh, and off he went and, you know, um, tried to to blow himself and his taxi driver up. Um, and that was never, you know, that was barely caught. It was caught by FBI, not RCMP. Right. Uh, so I understand that Canada is not always ready to, um, to act in the way it perhaps should, but that's the nature of living in a democratic society. Um, I, I think that... Um, problems are likely to happen. Apparently, people who have joined extremist groups uh, statistically are far less likely to reoffend once they leave than your average prison inmate. I've seen those stats. Your yeah. average yeah. criminal. So, uh, and and I know that in Aaron's case, um, you know, his the impetus for his outburst came from from uh, personal issues. Mm-hmm having nothing to do with, with the Islamic state or Islam or anything, um, basically mental health issues. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the case as well. In, uh, we have more to worry about the people who are not well and considering doing this in Canada than we do about these, from these broken handful of individuals who, uh, for the most part, you know, never want to see the butt end of a gun again. Just to remind my listeners, Aaron Driver back in 2016 was a young man from uh, Strathroy, Ontario, very clear to where I grew up in London, who uh, basically made a martyrdom video, which the the FBI picked up and sent to the RCMP. And when when police were responding to his house where he's living with his sister, he got in the back of a cab, detonated a very lousy bomb, and then he was killed by police when he exited the vehicle. Not sure what he was targeting, maybe Union Station in Toronto. But, Alexander, you, you've, you've used the term broken people a lot. I, I'm just curious, what response... Okay, and we, we agree. I mean, we know that there are people with mental health issues who often find themselves in terrorist groups. We know that terrorist groups exploit people with mental health issues, obviously, because they're easy targets. What responsibility do you, in the end of the day, assign to the people's decision to join groups like Islamic State, leave Canada, go live in the so-called caliphate, abide by their conditions, contribute to the horrendous treatment of people like Yazidis and things like that. At the end of the day, what what burden of responsibility should they bear? I'd say 100%. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you made those decisions, um, you know, no matter what reason you made them, uh, you know, other than the occasional person who literally did not know where they were going. Right. Um, if you made those decisions, you're responsible for them. Um, and I see no no discrepancy between considering somebody responsible for them 
and bringing them back to Canada to face face the charges that they, they would deserve to face. I actually prefer the idea, Phil, that these people are brought back can- to Canada, the ones who have committed crimes, to, to, stand, to stand trial for them. And I have faith in, you know, the Five Eyes system of, of uh, gathering information. Um, I know that the RCMP has been in uh, North and East Syria. They, they've made the mistake of sending... Um, uh, screenshots um, of, of mil- you know military po- military police people being there working for example in gender issues um, they're there they they know what's going on they have the ability to get the information from their from their colleagues in the Five Eyes and from the SDF um, and and uh, you know there isn't much more I can say I really think these people should be brought home immediately mm-hmm. the kids for the sake of, of their well-being absolutely we know that the two children who have returned home are doing fantastically um, the young orphan is uh, she's calling me Emma Alex <laughs> which is Auntie Alex and she's her English is almost flawless um, and and the young girl who came home uh, last year um, is also doing really well. We have her family connected with with an organization uh, that you're familiar with that will remain unnamed, unnamed uh, and they're getting all the help that they need. Uh, and the young girl is making fabulous progress. One, so there are there are good stories here. One last unfair question, Alex. Uh, Go for it. I, I have advocated that in in many scenarios that the the parents who brought their children over to Islamic the so called Islamic State the so called Caliphate are in many ways by definition unfit parents. Now I know the decision to remove chi- children from a parent is a very severe one under under Canadian law. It is only done <clears throat> under the most dire circumstances for the child's safety. Do you see scenarios here whereby the mere fact that you thought going to join a terrorist group and you want your kids to be part of it would disqualify you as being a parent to that child? Oh, Phil, you're asking me questions. I have absolutely no background to answer. I would have to be a child psychologist, um, you know, to, to be able fair, to answer. Fair enough. I'm not fair enough. speaking with child psychologists. I have been told that the primary caregiver the relationship with the primary caregiver is paramount Absolutely. and is to be protected at all costs. So unless mom is actually on her way to jail, um, they do everything that they can do to keep the family together and to repair the family, not to split it apart. So yeah, not my, not my, <laughs> not my circus, not my monkeys, but, um, but you know, what I do know from speaking to experts in the field is keep families together as, as long as you can and, that's, and work with them. And that's my understanding as well. I think you're absolutely right. I think unless there's clear abuse, be it mental, emotional, sexual, physical, or whatever, the child does belong with his or her parents. You know, Alexandra, I, I don't want to take much more of your time. I know you're you're very busy with this. Uh, there are issues on which I think we are in full agreement. I think there are issues on which we continue to disagree. But I do want to just uh, tip my hat to you and your group, your, your, your work with FAVE. Uh, I, I do appreciate and respect what you're trying to do in this regard. And uh, I just want to thank you for taking the time to uh, express your, your, your opinion on my podcast with me. You're welcome, Phil. It's been a lot of fun. That was my conversation with Dr. Alexander Bain from uh, Fredericton, New Brunswick. What do you think about the whole ISIS situation? Should Canada move heaven and earth to bring people back or should we try them there? Love to hear your feedback. You can reach me on email borealisrisk at gmail.com or on Twitter at borealisage. You can also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. 
If you like the content and want to get more, go to the website, borealisthreatenedrisk.com, hit the subscribe button. You'll also find a link there to my latest book, The Peaceable Kingdom, A History of Terrorism in Canada from Confederation of the Present, available on the website or on Amazon Kindle. Love to hear your feedback. We'll talk again soon. Until then, stay safe. Thank you.